The Center for Thinking Biblically is a ministry of the Masters University. Visit thinkbiblically.org for more information. So if the theological theory uh, that I've developed, the origins of culture from the suppression of truth, which really forms the thesis of the first book I wrote a number of years ago, Meaning at the Movies, it looks like a book about movies, but it's really a book on a theology of culture. If that holds true, we should probably be able to find some examples of believers in the narrative parts of Scripture who seem to function with that maybe in the back or maybe in the front of their mind. And I think we do see that. For instance, if you look at Daniel and the young men that are surrounding him, he is raised to the highest position in a pagan court. And what he does is he makes certain decisions. He has certain kind of intellectual ability. He's got a certain kind of spiritual maturity. He is selected largely because of these abilities by the pagan uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, and he's put in charge of, well, he's, he's almost like the secretary of state, almost like a vice regent in a certain sense. Why would that happen? Well, I think that Daniel's example is brilliant. He has mastered another culture. He knows that culture. He understands that culture. He's learned their ways. He's learned their language. He understands what their practices are. He has certain lines he will not cross, certain things that he won't do. It's quite clear there in the opening uh, couple of chapters of Daniel. So Daniel is a really good example. Another great example is Moses, right? Moses masters Egyptian culture. Moses also, like Daniel, rises really to one of the greatest imaginable heights of power in that culture. But there are certain things that he won't do, certain lines that he won't cross. He is used by God to demonstrate the power of God against pagan knowledge, wisdom, even demonic magic. So Moses, we know from Acts, and Daniel as well, is one of these examples of believers, followers of the one true God in the narrative portions of Scripture, that master their local culture, but turn that culture against itself, that know how to critique it, that know how to stop short of idolatry. But I think that there's another example that may be even more inspiring and helpful to us, and that is in the New Testament, right? Luke and Acts, together written by the physician Luke, uh, form a work that explains the life of Christ and the presentation of the gospel, and then in the book of Acts, the second book of the two-book set, is the birth, the origins, and the growth of the early church. And of course, rising right to the forefront after his conversion is Paul. Now, Paul is clearly a very educated guy. He studies with Gamaliel. He is, as he says, he's kind of an ultimate Jew. He knows the Old Testament. He understands everything that there is about being a Jew. He was also a Roman citizen. That seems to imply that he was fairly well educated uh, in Roman culture, Roman law, perhaps not formally, but Roman law, Roman culture. He certainly seems to know Roman paganism and Greek paganism, which is the root of Roman paganism. He understands his culture, and there's a particular passage that's very well known that demonstrates this in an extraordinarily powerful way, and I'm referring, of course, to Acts chapter 17. Now, Paul goes to Athens. Athens is known as the Greek city of the philosophers. It is dedicated to its patroness goddess, Athena, who is the goddess of wisdom. The central temple up on the Acropolis, the high part of the city, is the Parthenon. It's named for Athena because Athena is the goddess of wisdom, but she's also known as the virgin goddess. She never marries. She takes no lovers. 
and the Parthenos is the classical Greek word for a virgin. Paul is bringing the gospel to the people of Athens who all love to hear some new things. The Athenians were curious. They had invented philosophy, and philosophy really starts with curiosity. Philosophy always starts with a question. Well, what is all this stuff made out of? And where does it come from? And where is it going? And what does it mean? And how do I live? And what is goodness and truth and beauty? This was invented largely by the Athenians on the Greek peninsula. So Paul enters this culture to bring them the truth of the gospel, a truth to which they are spiritually blinded in their fallen state. Now, if you ask anybody, whether they're educated or not, what was the greatest of ancient cultures, almost everybody is going to start thinking about Greek culture, the statues, the temples, the idea of democracy, and all of these kinds of things that are invented by the Greeks. They are the inventors of mathematics, the inventors of geometry. They figure out and solve all kinds of things. And not only the ethnic Greeks, but the people in the Mediterranean basin that are heavily influenced by Greek culture and later Greco-Roman culture, all the way down into North Africa and well into the Middle East as far as India. And so what Paul does is he goes into this culture and he begins telling them what his message is. And they're like, well, this guy's interesting. He's telling us something new. He's a setter forth of strange gods, as the King James translation has it. And so they take him up to the Areopagus. Now, this is a hill named after Ares or Mars, the god of war. It's separated by a little ravine from the Acropolis, which is a little bit higher. So all the Greek temples are up on one side. And they take him up to the Areopagus because the Areopagus is where they would have debates and discussions and rhetorical contests and where they would hold trials and so on and so forth. So they bring him up there and they're like, let's get this guy to, 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 to give his speech to all these different philosophers and thinkers and rhetoricians up on the hill of Mars. And he gets up there and he sees that the hill of Mars is also filled with all kinds of religious paraphernalia. They've got altars to this god and that god and the other god and little mini temples and they've got places probably where you can light candles and you can leave offerings and you can pray and so on and so forth. And he, he tells the Athenians, you know, you guys are really, really religious. I notice you've got temples for this god and that god and all kinds of gods I've never even heard of. And then just to make sure that you didn't leave one god out and leave one god offended by not doing the right kind of deeds or actions or prayers or beliefs or offerings. I see you have a temple here and it's dedicated, this little, this little altar of worship. You have an altar dedicated to the unknown God. What a coincidence. I'm here to tell you about him. So they're like, well, it's okay. We've got a guy who's going to tell us about this, this God that we haven't heard about. We don't know. And they kind of settle into their seats and they're going to listen to Paul. And Paul says, you know, there is a God, and you know it, that made everything created and designed everything, and he is your father, and he is my father. You know this. And then he begins to quote their own culture to them. He says, even your own poets say that he is the father of us all, and in him we live and move and have our being. We have our origin in God. We are alive right now because of God. We move in the sphere of his influence and control, and we have our ultimate end with that God. Even you Greek Pagans know that, and yet you also know that you don't know him. That's why you have, ironically enough, an altar to the unknown God. It's not an altar to Hermes. It's not an altar to Zeus. It's not an altar to Hera or to Aphrodite. This is an altar to the unknown God. I'm here to tell him, tell you about him. And what Paul is actually doing there is he is quoting, apparently from memory, classical Greek pagan poet philosophers. Early Greek philosophy was written in poetic meter. It was a poem. And they tried to figure out the ultimate questions of philosophy 
by writing poetry. And Paul is apparently familiar enough that he can quote it from memory. I don't think he's carrying his little penguin pocket edition of the classical Greek pagan poet philosophers with him and saying, wait a minute, on page 25 you say this. He knows his culture because he's read their poetry and he's studied their philosophy. Now this doesn't mean he has a master's degree in philosophy and a doctorate in poetry. What this means is he's lived in a culture, he's learned what the culture is about, and he knows how to critique that culture and how to quote it against itself. You people, the wisest of them all, the Athenians, you admit that you don't know the God in whom you live and move and have your being. This is a phenomenal moment in the New Testament, one of the greatest moments in all the narrative passages, because Paul here is not only bringing the gospel to the lost Athenians, but he's showing us how to do it. The gospel is always embedded in its culture, but must never be conformed to the culture. Because the next thing that Paul does after quoting Cleanthes and Eratus, the hymn to Zeus and the Phenomena, which still exist in many ancient manuscripts, these are the, the texts that Paul is quoting to them, he then begins to tell them about the story of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And they listen intently. This is a fascinating story. Wait, God left heaven and came to earth to save us? And the minute he begins to describe the core of the gospel, which is the death, burial, and then bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, dead one minute, alive the next, through his own divine power. The minute he tells them that, they begin to laugh and scoff because central to classical Greek philosophy, religion, and ethics, and their view of death, is that life is short and full of pain. This is a culture that has no analgesic, no way to curb pain. If you're sick, you're sick. If you have a headache, you have a headache. If your teeth are rotting, the pain is unbearable. If you break a bone, they're going to have to saw off your leg. There is no anesthetic other than alcohol, and very much of that will have a very negative effect. So these are people who live lives that are characterized primarily by pain. They also have no good healthy sources of water. Childbirth is terrifying and deadly for many women. Many people don't make it past the first two years of their life. They live lives of pain and terror. And they believe that when you died, you went to a better place, a world that they would sometimes call Elysium, where you relax and you enjoyed and you enjoyed all the different kind of pleasures of life and none of the pain. Why in the world would you ever want to leave that place and come back to a physical body. They actually believed over time, over a thousand years, you'd be reincarnated and you would come back and your mind would be erased and you had to start learning things all over again so you want to habituate yourself in virtue. Well, why would they leave that place and come back to a world uh, and a life of pain and a body of suffering? Well, they believed you drank from one of the classical underworld's five rivers, the, 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 the river Lethe, which caused you to have your mind erased. You would basically come back as a blank. And so what Paul is doing is he's telling them that God came to earth and was crucified, dead and buried, and physically, bodily resurrected on the third day. And they said, okay, we're following up until we get to the bodily resurrection part. That's insane. And they called him a babbler. But what Paul has done is he has set the standard. Know your culture in order to reach your culture and in order to critique your culture. That's what Paul is doing, and that's what Christians are called to do. And in the middle of that phenomenal talk, little sermonette, really, he says that you should know that God, that this unknown God, can never be apprehended through 
things you make because you're filled with a desire and a longing in your innermost thought life. What he says is you should know that God is not made by, and then he uses the word techne, we get the word technology and technique and technical from that. Techne means the ability to design and create something from an idea and make an artifact, whether it is a stone arrowhead or whether it's a Boeing 747, that's techne, it's technology. He said, you should know that by making stuff, you haven't made God, and he can sweep his arm around at all their little altars, that you know that these aren't your gods. And talk about the greatest sermon illustration of all time. He can sweep his arm back behind him and point to the Parthenon and the Erechtheum and everything up on the Acropolis, which is all designed for public, civic, pagan worship. He said, you know that what's in there are statues. Those aren't your gods. They're not real. He says, you should know. You're the wise philosophical Athenians. You're the inventors of science, the inventors of rationality in the ancient world. You should know that techne, technology, technique, will never make your God. And then he says, you know it's not techne, and then there's another word that's actually fa fairly difficult to translate in the way he uses, enthumisias. Uh, in Matthew, it's used both times as Jesus could see the inner thoughts of their heart when they're scheming against him. In Hebrews 4.12, right, the word of God is alive and powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts you asunder. It's like it, it can cut right through the joints of your bones, and it can go right into the center of your being, the metaphorical heart of man. He says it will, it will judge and it will divide and it will expose the thoughts and intents of your heart. In other words, nothing does what Scripture does. It cuts through everything through all the lies, through all the labyrinthine layers of lies that you've told yourself and that you've told other people and they've told you, all the lies of your culture, all the lies of fallen Adamic man, and cuts right to the center and it tells you the truth about yourself. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God will never lie to you. But here, Paul's using it in a different way. He's saying, you guys have this poetry and this art and this philosophy and you're inventing science and math and geometry, all the, you, you, you people are amazing. Your culture is expanding all over the world because it seems to tap into people at the deepest part. The Greeks are not simply militarily conquering the world as the Romans did. You're conquering the world culturally because there's something about your culture that goes right to the heart of what it means to be a human being, as the Romans used to ask the question, quidest homo, what is a man? Right? What does it mean to be human? Right? Very much like Psalm 8, right? What is man that thou art mindful? What, what are we? And that's the ultimate philosophical question. What, what am I? How can I not know what I am? And yet that's our fallen condition. And Paul says, you don't know who you are. At the entrance to every one of your temples, it says, in Greek, which is know yourself. The whole point of going to the temples and worshiping the God, the whole point of getting an education, learning to read and studying geometry and studying art was to know yourself. And he says, you don't even know what you are. So he's saying that your inner thought life, this enthumisios, is this emptiness where you are filled with a longing for truth and goodness and beauty. You're filled with a desire for justice. And you know what justice is, but you can never quite get there. And you want to know what your origins are, but you don't even remember being born.
And so you don't really know where human beings as a whole came from. You also don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or two minutes from now. You don't know where you're going to end up. You've got all these myths, but you don't know. And so you're filled with this emptiness and this enthomisios, this inner world, as Paul imagines it. He says, this is what produces your culture. You imagine mythological gods. You invent ideas about beauty that are never quite perfectly beautiful because they're not holy. And so Paul becomes the ultimate example of how to apply the critique of a culture from within that culture itself. And it's brilliant and it's beautiful because it's divine. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thinking Biblically podcast. To help support this ministry, please visit thinkbiblically.org forward slash donate. To learn more about the Masters University on campus and online undergraduate and graduate programs, visit masters.edu.